Mormonism meets biblical Christianity. Face to face. <laughs> and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Listen, I'm sitting in a Del Taco uh, a while ago, and this, this young man is in the booth next to him with uh, his dad and his grandpa, who's LDS, and he watches the show, and I'm gonna let his dad introduce him. But anyway, he came up and talked to me, and while he was talking to me, he got his mom on the phone and everything. And anyway, I had the pleasure, because we had become friends, to, to perform their marriage, the wedding of these two lovely people, Blaine and Sonny, and they're here with their family. We performed it in, the, in a uh, beautiful room with all loved ones gathered around. So I'm gonna let Blaine introduce the family. Of course, this is my lovely wife, Sonny. And this is River, Chloe, our youngest, and Riley. All right, a beautiful family, and, uh, and uh, we are so grateful to have them uh, as fans of Heart of the Matter and here in the studio tonight. So congratulations on your wedding and the family that you are. Thank you. Thank you, River. Thank you. Yeah, we want to show you a couple quotes. The screen's not working. Tell me when it's off, I can't see. <laughs> we thank the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. May he be with you and us tonight. The station is up and running, the Heart of, Matter, Heart of the Matter Television Network, 19.3 KPDR here in Utah, and uh, it's, uh, it's coming together. We've uh, had some real fortune. God has blessed us. Uh, by getting programming out there, putting it together. The task is monumental. You can't imagine what it takes to do it, and I am just a small part of it. We have back a uh, series of volunteers that are doing everything, and it's going on. So we want to show you a little spot. No spot.
I'm on. So uh, check out the station if you live in the Utah area, and we're going to be doing more and more to let you know who's on there. A lot of great pastors teaching the Word of God. Hang with us. Pray for us, especially for me in uh, my failures in my flesh and every other way. Uh, going to skip the word tonight. We have a special presentation that is going to come to you. It's part three of God. And uh, we're going to let this run, and then we're going to come back and take phone calls. Uh, perhaps uh, this will present a view you haven't considered. Uh, take notes, take exception, take heart, if you will, but take a look. Lord is there in the temple. This seems to be the place when he's in Jerusalem that he loves to speak from. He goes to the temple and he teaches and they gather around there. So the issue with the woman caught in adultery has been taken care of. And afterward, Jesus begins to readdress those who are gathered around. And that includes not only the common folk, but the leaders, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, whatever word we want to use to describe them. Uh, and it, as he readdresses them, ver John chapter 8, verse 12, this is what it says. Then spake Jesus again, the woman is now, whatever has happened with her, unto them saying, I am the light of the world. And then he adds, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We're going to cover that in uh, the next uh, week or two. But I want to focus on this first line of the passage where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Unlike most of our gatherings, this single line uh, is going to take a few weeks to cover. And it's important to our understanding of exactly what is meant here. But it's also important when we look at kind of what's happening with this ministry that's behind it and the church and what we do. And our view of the eternal God, because to know him is life eternal. And uh, we wonder sometimes about his makeup. And due to recent conversations and things, I think it's important to use this to springboard off into Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Now, the first thing we have to take note is in response to Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, the Pharisees didn't rent their clothes. They didn't toss dust. They didn't pick up stones to kill him. Um, how come? I am the light of the world is a huge statement when you think about it. To me, in this day and age, it almost sounds like one of the most incendiary statements a person could make. Could you imagine somebody coming in and standing before us and saying, I am the light of the world? It's almost like saying, I am God in, in the way that we might see it. But interestingly, the Jews and the Pharisees who were there, their response to it was sort of like, to paraphrase, yeah, 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 you're just, you're just boasting of yourself, you're just promoting yourself, you're being your own witness. But it, it wasn't one of wrath. They didn't go ballistic on that. According to German Bible scholar Johann Sotjen, uh, who specialized when he was alive in Hebrew messianic uh, insights, he says there was a commonly held belief that the promised Messiah would be a light 
to the world. Where did they get that idea that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, would be a light to the world? When you find out, you might be stunned. In any case, the Jewish reaction was, and this is what the scripture says, they said, you bear witness of yourself. Your record's not true. And we'll, couple that, we'll cover that in the, in the weeks to come. But it was just another way of saying, you're not the promised Messiah, so stop testifying of it and telling us you're the light of the world. So that is the first point we want to understand about this beautiful line uttered by Jesus, I am the light of the world. The Jews were neither surprised nor offended by it. They rejected it as having application to him, but it didn't uh, incite them to uh, want to kill him in any way like it will later on in this chapter when he says, before Abraham was, I am, and then they went ballistic. But the light of the world, they stepped back on. Now, of late, just to kind of tie in, we faced an inordinate amount of kickback from my questioning and even refusal to accept the term Trinity uh, as man-made definition of God. It is up to you to find out if you agree with that man-made uh, definition and if you believe it's inspired, and if you do, that's fine. Uh, the main argument I have is the Trinity has been classically defined as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing as separate persons or minds or core personalities prior to the creative period. So there was a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit separate personalities prior to Genesis chapter 1 that says, in the beginning God. That's part of it. Now, there's two general and acceptable views within Christianity relative to this aspect of the Trinity. One says that the Son, Jesus Christ, has existed as the Son for eternity. And uh, this is known as eternal sonship by theologians. The other is that the Word of God became the Son when He took on flesh, thus making Him God, uh, uh, thus making God the Father and Him God the Son. I adhere to this latter perspective and so, uh, and do so primarily because nowhere in the Old Testament descriptions of God as God, is he ever described as being or being in a father-son relationship? It doesn't exist until we get to the incarnation of Christ and then we see a father-son relationship. In other words, I reject eternal sonship and believe pre-incarnate Jesus is better understood as the Word of God, the Holy Spirit as the breath or the pneuma of God, and with God not being a father at all until the incarnation of the Word. The Jews did not relate to God as their father with a capital F in the Old Testament. He was God. He was Theos. Now, understand this point of view has always been my understanding of God since leaving Mormonism. Of course, Mormonism, I always thought that there was a father and a, and a son who were uh, physical beings, representations of each other, the son having to come and get a body, but he was a, he was a spirit being that looked like he did when he was born. Uh, 
but I errantly believed that the Trinitarian view reflected this idea that the Son became the Son when he bore flesh. And it's not so. Additionally, in my rejection of eternal sonship, I also cling to the notion that God was wholly one, eternal being, who manifested himself in a variety of different ways from the beginning of his engagements with human beings. That word manifest is a real red flag to theologians. Uh, and in some ways I've contributed to the argument terribly because I haven't explained myself well. In fact, several years ago on live television to explain to our audience here in Utah, I illustrated the Trinity as, a pre as the pre-creation God being a consuming fire. Some of you may have watched the show where I discussed how God was this consuming fire, and then I illustrated how at the incarnation of his word, pre-creation, by which he established all things, when he took on flesh, within the flesh of Christ, the fire dwelled. And that the Father, as fire, re remained there, and the Holy Spirit, as fire, when it fell on Pentecost, revealed itself as fire. And uh, those were manifestations of God to man in the redemption of humankind. Again, not so, says the Trinity. In fact, this description has led many Christian believers, educated and not to say, uh, modalist and heretic. That's not true, because the Trinity says Father, Son, Holy Spirit, separate persons, individuals from pre-creation. So again, for clarification's sake, Orthodox Christianity has long taught and believed that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit existed in the beginning as persons individuated from each other before the foundation of the world, and they were respectively known as, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To deny eternal sonship is not unheard of in the realms of Christian the theology. And as mentioned, Dr. Walter Martin, who used to reach out to the Mormons in his ministry, a, a PhD, he denied eternal sonship. And so did Dr. John MacArthur. He's since recanted that, and he's gone back to uh, eternal sonship. But before, he said, no, I don't think so either. So it's not a real clear issue. Understand clearly, I believe and admit that God, His Word, his spirit have all existed from eternity, that they are co-equal, that they are uncreated. I just have issue with the characterization of what we have used persona. It might be a personification of God when we use the word persons. That's very difficult for me reading the Old Testament without the aid of men and just seeing what it says and then coming up with the idea that the Son and the Father have existed from then. So why even do this, you may ask, for several reasons. First of all, having come to, from Mormonism, I want to make sure the idea of persons of the Godhead in the Trinity are not mistaken for the anthropomorphic persons of God in Mormonism. And to use persons, it muddies the water, in my opinion. Rejecting the word person, commonly used by Christians to describe the three of the Trinity, goes a long way to avoid this confusion. Secondly, while I readily acknowledge the existence of three in the pre-creation period and agree with the Trinitarian notion that they are all of the same God-matter, 
God's substance, so to speak. I do firmly believe this God's substance is best understood as fire and light. Fire and light. And I am convinced the oneness of God is best understood within the parameter of these characteristics. Pre-creation God, fire and light. This example has been criticized by some uh, because for them it smacks of an idea called modalism. And which, depending on the form of modalism, describes one God who then manifests himself in different ways. And traditional modalism, which is known as Sabellianism, says that that one God cannot be in more than one place at one time. So the Father became the Son, and then when the Son said, I have to leave, so the Holy Spirit comes, that's Sibelian said he had to leave because when he left, then the Holy Spirit could come and the Son becomes the Holy Spirit. And I reject that out of hand. I am not teaching that. Additionally, most modalists reject the deity of Christ. Arian and why the councils came together to create the Trinity was saying Christ is not God, and I reject that completely. Nothing could be further from my mind and heart. So I completely respect and, and I believe all of Scripture. And one of them, Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I accept that. That is absolutely true. And when the virgin was with child and brought forth a son whose name was Emmanuel, God with us, do I also accept that God the Father was looking down upon that from a separate non-time-space place? Absolutely. Was the Holy Spirit at work in different ways at that time? Absolutely. But we're still left with some issues that I cannot reconcile by embracing the man-made term Trinity nor the orthodox descriptions of it. And this brings us to a major point which is greatly used against me by my fellow brothers and sisters in the body. And it's Sean has not and does not read what other men have said on the issue. Um, in the text I received from a brother who's very intelligent, it's not Rob Bowman, he gave me a list of different books and scholars I should consult to understand the issue better. I wrote back to him and said, when it comes to reading books um, about Christianity, I read no other book than the Bible. And I rely on the Bible and the Bible alone, and I always have. His response was, this hurts my heart deeply. Our dear brother, Rob Bowman from IRR, who I love now, and he's become a, a, a better friend now and a brother, in his review of our 10-hour conversations together, kindly wrote this summation, quote, my assessment is that Sean's theology is confused and otherwise lacking largely because he has never studied Christian theology at a serious level and because probably an overreaction to the programmed instructions and extra biblical text imposed in Mormonism, he has tried to develop his understanding by reading only the Bible. End quote. So, I obviously am going to be wrong. And that's why, you know, we say it all the time and we mean that. You don't follow me. You follow me, you go to hell. 
we have a, a Lord who came that we follow, and we, we learned about him and his word. Um, so I want to openly admit that I've avoided reading those things, and while modern Christianity has, and, and certainly theologians are critical of this, in my opinion, I am bereft of their manthology and the true theology comes through the word. And so I feel an advantage to never have had my thoughts tainted by, uh, by Christianity as it's known today. So what has my reading of the Bible only, hopefully in conjunction with the Holy Spirit sometimes, what has it led to? First, as mentioned, there is a problem with eternal sonship. I don't believe most Christians know and you might not too, that the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that Jesus was the Son, separate and distinct from the Father, with his own personality and had a type of relationship with Heavenly Father that an earthly father has with a son. That that is distinct as they were pre-creation. Just like we do. When I learned this, and, and this was of late, embarrassing as it is, my ontological understanding of the Trinity was rocked. Um, now, admittedly, there are so many ways we will never understand or comprehend with our finite minds, God, not in the flesh. Orthodox Trinitarianism calls the three co-equal persons uncreated and applies New Testament titles given to them of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Admittedly, once the Word was made flesh, those titles are absolutely apropos and continue to be apropos today. I have no problem with a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. But pre-creation is the question. And the Old Testament never identifies them by Trinitarian titles unless we're speaking of prophetically, and those are just a few instances in the Old Testament, and it's speaking of what's to come. Secondly, the prevailing and overemphasized monotheism found in the Old Testament, which is reiterated over and over and over again by the prophets, I am God, I am one, there is none before me, none beside me, uh, leads me to a view God as manifesting himself in his relationship to the salvation of humankind in flesh and blood and by the indwelling of the spirit, far more than thinking three separate and distinct persons created, uh, existed pre-creation and then showed up on the biblical scenes to challenge monotheistic uh, 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 views. Uh, I am not equating Jesus nor the Holy Spirit in any way to pillars of fire or clouds of the Old Testament uh, or burning bushes. I am not saying the burning bush was God, meaning the bush itself. But I am saying that at that point in his work among fallen man, this was the way God manifested himself. Okay, so the pneuma and the word are as much God as the Father, but how? This mystery we will not get our hands upon, but we do learn some things from Scripture. And if you hang with me for the rest of our time, I think you're going to be, have your minds blown. I think you're going to see some things, and you have to test and challenge this. So let's start speaking to a reprobate fallen people, men. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 23. Professing themselves to be wise... They became fools, listen, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God, that's singular, into an image made like corruptible man. 
changed corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. The glory of God is not anything like corruptible man at all in any way. Uh, and bottom line, when we say corruptible man, we will automatically think person or four-footed beasts or creeping things, and this we can assure ourselves. But scripture does say a few things relative to the actual makeup of God. And you've been here long enough, if you've been here long enough, you know what those things are. It is by and through the study of what scripture and how it defines God that I have come to identify or see pre-creation ontology of God as something different than in persons. And the scripture gives us some definitive and strong statements. God is. Three times in the New Testament. Three times. You ready? God is love. That's a character, uh, characteristic, but it could be something else as far as we know. He's not, he doesn't possess love. He is love. So that might somehow be part of his makeup pre-creation, this love that when we die and go to, we are overwhelmed because we've never felt or seen such love. But it says God is love. That we know. What else do we know? God is light. He is light. God is a consuming fire. Those are the three things we get from the New Testament describing from Hebrews and from John what, who God is, okay? I still and ardently maintain that the best way to understand pre-creation theos, logos, pneuma, which are all manifestations of our monotheistic God is fire. And not fire that burns like a campfire and has to have wood to, to tr convert that wood to heated energy, a fire that exists without any need for anything else, which makes it completely unique. Even the sun exists off gases and, and God does not exist off anything else. So scripture says God is light, which goes hand in hand with our understanding of fire. An attribute Jesus assigns to himself here in John 8, 12, when he's uh, there at the temple. Now, I'm not going to go into the third description, the, the first one of God, that he is love, uh, because we're going to stick with just the descriptions of him being a consuming fire and light right now. 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you. So John the beloved, he says, this is the message we have heard of him, Christ. Okay, Christ taught John this. And declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I would suggest that no darkness means not only the absence of physical darkness, but it is, he is also completely void of guile, lies, hypocrisy, Jesus despised the darkness of hypocrisy, shadow, trickery, death, deception, blindness, or ignorance. Now there's, a, there's something a guy named Greg Boyd teaches, it's called open theism, as a, as a way to co contradict sort of what Calvinism teaches. And open theism suggests God doesn't know everything. He knows all the possible outcomes of everything and he operates by those possible outcomes, but he doesn't know what will happen. It's called open theism. I would completely reject this simply because that would include ignorance in the light. 
that he's not sure of which choice and that precludes and completely discards the description of him being a light and a fire completely. Okay, thinking men for, for me at least, thinking then for me at least, is that scripture plainly says God is light and if Jesus is God, then the syllogism must be Jesus is light and his words in the temple are true. I am the light of the world. If Jesus is God as we maintain as Christians, then he is speaking truth. Then we see in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Since God is love and Jesus is God, then Jesus must be love. And we see this manifested throughout his entire earth life, love, okay? Finally, relative to our topic of the ontology of God or makeup of God, Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, since God is a consuming fire and Jesus is God, I know, and I know that's a strong statement, but I take it on faith by the word, I know that Jesus under that flesh was a consuming fire. He had to be a consuming fire if God is a consuming fire, if Hebrews is correct, and if he is God. So this brings all of this back to Jesus standing there in the temple and saying, I am the light of the world. I don't think there's enough time in a month to fully flesh this verse out contextually and biblically. Uh, so let's try to do it in the next 15 minutes. Uh, I want to appeal to three sets of, of, of scripture as a foundation and then go back to the first set. Okay, you ready? Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Put your finger at these very first verses because we're going to come back to that. Listen to what it says. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, first words, God says in the Bible, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. First set of scriptures, we'll come back to that. The next one are in John, the all familiar John 1, 1 through 5. Ready? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. You have that? In conjunction with Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light when he looked upon the darkness. All right. Now it's the final one, uh, John the Beloved, a more personal witness of the divinity of Christ in his epistle, 1 John. He says in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, again, his personal witness, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that we also have, may have fellowship with us that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So go with me back. There's our, some of our just foundational texts. Go with me back to Genesis 1, verses which I'm going to use to prove 
which I believe is a good proof of my perspective. Not exhaustive, but a good one. While you're turning there, we know something very important about the New Testament. That from the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, that's pre-creative period, God had victory. From the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. We know that. What does that mean? From the foundation of the world, God had victory before he created anything. It was established that he was going to reign and rule over the victory. Okay? Remember that. By and through what would he reign? By light. By light, which became incarnate and dwelled among us as Christ Jesus. Let me drink this. Matthew 13, 35 talks about the Messiah and that he would open, quote, his mouth in parables, uttering things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Okay? John 17, 24, Jesus is praying and he's speaking of his 12, his, ten, his excuse me, his 11 that are chosen. And he says, Father... I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which was which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Speaking of Jesus since ascended Peter says in 1 Peter 1:20 this is talking about Jesus who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest there's that word in these last times for you. Okay? And then, of course, Revelation 13, 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Talk, people wonder, do you worship Christ? Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we have before the creative period at all, God having victory, having won, and I would suggest it's by light. Do we have insight to this event at all? Does the scripture tell us what happened in the pre-creative period right at the beginning where God has this victory from the foundation? That means right at the beginning of the creative period of the world we do. Go back with me to the first verses of the Bible. Here we read a number of things that are greatly misunderstood. I consulted with some theologians and looked and many of them said this is God separating the day from the night. It's absolutely insane to even suggest that. And yet some of the great the theological minds said that's what it is. Well, let you read and decide. In what I believe is a summary or preamble to all he is about to write about hereafter, the first verse of the Bible has Moses saying, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In other words, I think, and of course I could be wrong, but I think Moses is saying, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and here are some insights to how he did it. So it's a preamble to the whole first chapter of Genesis, the whole creative period. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's not a declarative statement. It's, it's a preamble to what Moses is going to then tell us. Where it says God there, in the beginning, God, the Hebrew word, you'll be familiar with this, is Elohim. And it's a plural. It's a title of God. And I would suggest that the, better, the best understanding of this is that Theos, by his pneuma, his spirit, and through his word, the three are one. They created heaven and earth. The three are there. The oneness is there. Pre-creative period from the foundation of the world. 
Now, in verse 2, I would suggest Moses begins to describe a very abbreviated uh, description of what happened before anything happened. You ready? And the earth was without form. It was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God, there's that pneuma, that breath, moved upon the face of the waters. So we're seeing something going on here. The Hebrew word, interestingly enough, for darkness here in the second verse is koshek. And for the most part throughout the Old Testament, koshek, dark, means evil. It means misery, sorrow, death, destruction, and that which is not good. Uh, it does describe physical darkness, but more often than not, Koshef means evil and darkness, okay? The general opposite of light. If you look at Strong's Interlinear, which is not the best uh, uh, um, lexicon for understanding the different word languages in Hebrew or Greek, but it's okay, this is what it says the literal meaning, physical darkness. But then it says the figurative meaning, misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness, obscurity. Many people without really looking at the context interpret the term darkness here in uh, verse two as literal darkness, okay? And it kind of makes sense since when we think of there being a pre-creative period of the earth that when God looked out upon the face of the deep, upon the dark, that it was just physically dark. But that is not the case at all. I would strongly, strongly suggest that this darkness is figuratively speaking and that evil, destruction, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness was upon the face of the deep. Prior then to doing any creating for earth, for our earthly economy, prior to anything being formed, we read the third verse, God's response to this darkness. This is what he says. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's a lowercase light there. And so it's not the proper person yet, but it is, it's like, let there be my presence in the presence of this dark situation. A couple of things about verse three. First of all, it's not speaking of God creating the sun that hangs in our sky. He's talking about the creative period, but he's not talking about the sun or the stars or the moons. He speaks these into existence on the fourth day. Okay, so this is not, as many people have taught, this is when, you know, hey, light and dark, and I can see things now, okay. God couldn't create things unless he could first see them, so he had to bring light in so he could see. Not that at all. This is what it says in verse 14 and 16, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament between the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Here we have the distribution of time by the sun and the moon and the stars, all the way down in verse 14. We're all the way up in verse three where he says, let there be light, and there was darkness brooding upon the face of the deep. So this is also an argument against uh, the seven day and it being literal 24 days. We didn't have time until verse 14 and 16, but day one was way back in, in verse three. So we have spans of time that we try to say it was 24 days and that's, <laughs> it's insane to say that looking at this, okay? 
And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night to rule the night. And he made the stars also. God made the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule the day over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God said that it was good. And evening and the morning were the fourth day. And this is way, way after. Okay, verses three that we're talking about. So here in the very beginning, we are reading about the first day. He calls it a day, not a 24-hour period. We didn't have suns and stars orbiting yet to give us time. Anyway, that's for another day. And so what was it God was talking about here when he says in verse three, let there be light? First of all, the Hebrew word translated light is R-W-A, transliterated into English, roa. Okay, and it not only means light, but it means fire. It means both throughout scripture. In the face of the darkness, God said before doing anything else, before as it were from the foundation of the world, God said in the face of this darkness, let there be light. This gives some real significance to Jesus' words in John 8 as he stood in the temple and said, I am the light of the world. It also helps us understand why the Pharisees standing there were not angry at him saying it. Listen, according to that Bible scholar, Satanjen, a number of G, uh, Jewish rabbis over the years have believed that Genesis 1-3 was in reference to the promised Messiah. That's what it's talking about there. And we have evidence of that from the foundation of the world. So it wasn't unusual for them to get, for someone to say, I'm that light. I'm the light that came into the world because it was promised in Genesis 1-3 and the Jewish rabbis, they interpreted Genesis 1-3 as this being what it was talking about. Obviously not about suns and stars. Uh, in other words, let there be light was God from the foundation of the world overwhelming the darkness from the very beginning saying, I'm going to step in and do this the proper way from the get-go we're bringing light into. Now, this is going to get heavy just for a minute if it hasn't been already. God, theos, logos, pneuma, his word, his breath, are uncreated and self-existing, and they are a fiery one, pre-incarnate Christ. Knowing that the word was not created, but was with theos from the beginning, co-eternal and co-equal, I think we can, I think we can see that in the beginning when God said, let there be light, that the word of God... He did it by the word. These are his first words that he speaks, right? So it's the word of God that says, let there be light. It was, it, so the word of God is self-existing, was offered up as the light of the world from before the foundation of the world. I know this gets really heavy. I'm not sure we can get our minds around it, but in and through it, we can agree that the Logos created all things that the Logos spoke light into place from the foundations of the world to confound and have victory over the darkness. And we are able to see how Jesus, the incarnate word, was able to plainly refer to himself as the I am, the self-existent one. So again, before the foundation of the world, God said in the face of the darkness, let there be light. And here from the foundation of the world, God's solution, light, which was coming to the world a thousand, thousands of years later, was established by his word. Notice that God did not say, let there be my son. He didn't say in the face of the darkness, let there be my son. There, that's a really important point when you're considering all this. The first thing he said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, so please forgive me, God and man, but he said, let there be light to come in 
to offset and overwhelm this darkness, have victory from the foundation of the world. It wasn't, he wasn't, there wasn't a battle there. God said, I'm going to do this, your darkness. In other words, in the face of such darkness, I'm going to establish first victory. Slain from the foundation of the world, light, my light to overcome the darkness. And I'll do it by speaking this into existence, the word, by the word. So God said, let there be light and there is light. Now, as mentioned, this is not speaking of the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, stay with me. Verse four then says, and God saw the light, lowercase l, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. There's a victory. Here is a victory. Perhaps the better way to read this would be, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God put separation between the dark and the light. To me, when God said, let there be light, he was saying, before I create anything, I'm going to establish the solution to all this misery and darkness by allowing there to be light in the face of it, my light, my fire, and he did it by his word, dividing, separating the dark and light. I believe we experience this division uh, uh, each day in our own physical existences here. We have a day. We're in the light of day. It's a beautiful time to live. It's a beautiful time to choose who we are and what we're doing. But within that comes the dark night. And that's always a time in scripture of weeping. And, and, but the dark night will end. The sun always rises again. And we have that day coming back in victoriously. And we know when we die and we live with him, it will be no night. It will only be day. And he will be the light. Because there will be no stars and moon. We know that from Revelation. And he will, he will illuminate all of heaven. So the dark will then completely be done away. But because the earth fell into sin, darkness has a place. And we see it every day. That's why I tell people, you know, I did some terrible thing today. Guess what? Tomorrow is another day. And it's not just positive speaking. This is from the beginning we have dark and light. And it continues to exist for us. You're going to be blown away when we get to it. I'm almost there. <laughs> We have the day, light, and we have the night, darkness. In this, we get these great symbolisms of life and trials, temptation, always through scripture, dark and light are there and the darkness fell. And, and Jesus said, they're children of the dark. It's all this battle, this thing going on. But the real clincher is located in the next verse, verse five. Ready? It says, and God called the light, lowercase l, day, capital D. Day with a capital D. What is that? And the darkness he called night with a capital N. Ooh, we have the personification now of something here. Pre-creative, before he ever did anything with gathering the waters and all that, we have the personification of day and night. Very significant. I would propose to you that this naming of the light, day, is the naming of the light of the world. Is the naming of the light of the world. With a capital D naming the darkness of the world, or not the capital D, with darkness, uh, making the, uh, the night a capital N, and you know what that signifies. First, God called the light Hebrew, O-R-O-W-R, -O -O day. It was a primary position. Then he called the dark night. 
That, dark, that word night in the Hebrew is lael. I can't pronounce it well. And it's not a good word in the spiritual sense. Do you know what lael means? Night, capital N. A twister away from the light. Twist away from the light. Twisting away. That's what night means, capital N now. Something that twists away from the light that God imposed. All right? Remember, God said the light was good. This infers the dark was evil. With the night being capitalized here, we have the personification and the same with light. Let me conclude by going to this final verse to point out some things. You ready? Some final verses. In 2 Peter uh, 1.19, we read of Christ, where Peter writes, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rises in your heart. So Peter refers to this day star here rising in the hearts of people, okay? He draws on the imagery describing rebirth, regeneration, sanctification of man, the light shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star, that's Jesus Christ, by the way, the day star rises in our hearts. From the beginning, the third, fourth, fifth verse of Genesis, we have day, capital D, and uh, coming in and we have his personification in the flesh as the sun. Where Peter says the day star arise in your hearts, it's best translated as morning star. Morning star. I consulted 12 uh, translations of the Bible. 10 of them use morning star instead of day star. They'd say, well, I thought day, it's all going to play. It plays. It's the same thing, really. Who, again, is Christ? He's a light of fire pre-incarnate. The day star, the morning star, it is noteworthy that Genesis says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So after he does this with night and dark, light and dark and morning, and he says, and he calls the light day, and he calls the dark night, and then, he, and, then, and then Moses follows up, and the evening, that's the darkness, and the morning, that's the day star, okay? We're the first day. That's the first day of creation right there, that comparative. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. There's darkness. In whom the God of this world has blinded, that's darkness, the mind of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus in Revelation 22, 16 says of himself. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Standing in the temple, Jesus says plainly, I am the light of the world.
Um, so there's another addition into our uh, discussion of the term Trinity and the pre-creation uh, monotheistic God. It's food for thought. We're going to cover more of that as we go on. I know that was a long bit, and we have three calls waiting. We also have another call on hand, and we're going to take that right now. That was pre-recorded by someone who called our phone line, whose name is Max. Let's hear that, Seth. Messages for Sean McCraney. Um, I don't know if it's ever going to reach him or if it's an operator going to listen to it. Um, I've been a, a devout member of the Mormon Church for 20 some odd years, and I've recently decided for myself that, and, and my wife has also decided that we're leaving the church based on some evidence we found that it's not true. Um, I don't expect you to pay a lot of attention to me or play this on your show or anything, um, just call me Max if you do, but um, I just want to know what you would say to someone who wants to know the next step. Um, we grew up in a, in a church that's a culture our whole lives, and that's all we know, and I'm very interested in having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to call myself Christian, but um, if you can, in today's show, just address what is the thing we do next when we decide we don't want to be in the church anymore? I would really appreciate it. And I want to say God bless you. And, um, and I just uh, would really like to hear it or um, just understand what to do. So thank you very much. Bye. Uh, Max. Um, first of all, uh, praise God that you've come out from that darkness and uh, you've seen the light. Uh, you are in for a journey that is uh, extremely rewarding and very difficult at the same time. Uh, having been there and many, many other people who have been there with you understand that. Those who haven't been there don't. Uh, so the first and foremost, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to uh, trust the Lord and to begin your days with your wife or your children or your family, uh, with yourself, and just, just say, Lord, guide me. Be a lamp to my feet. I, I, put my hand, I put my life in your hands and trust in him and him alone. Uh, learn the word. Read the word of God uh, on your own and with your wife if you can, if there's time, things like that. But study the word of God. Uh, attend a good Bible teaching church, one that does not impose upon you the ideas of men, one that just teaches the word. They're all faulty. They all make mistakes, including ours. Uh, so men, we're not going to make it for you, and you realize that as a Latter-day Saint. So listen to what is taught, listen to what is done, and compare it with a sound study of the word with the Holy Spirit, which will guide you. And then wait on the Lord. Don't be, uh, don't be anxious to correct your LDS family and friends. Don't step out and try to let them see everything yet. Give God time to build in you uh, uh, his word and his faith and his love, and in time he'll use you. So Max, really, uh, just a, a quick summary. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Give your life, your wife, give her life, your children, their lives to him. You cannot go wrong 
trusting him and him alone. Let's go to Jeff in West Jordan, Utah on line one. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, I just wanted to call. I'm asking you to ask if, in light of your recent uh, statements regarding the creeds of man and extra biblical text uh, as, uh, from uh, Rob Bowman's uh, letter to you, I'm curious as to um, if you could see the hypocrisy as to why we would listen to any commentary from you or read any commentary from your books. You shouldn't. Uh, you know, you shouldn't. I'd read the word. Uh, but, you know, it's not that we don't listen. It's not that we, we don't uh, seek truth and we don't read other books. I do. But when it comes to, um, when it comes to Mormonism, I think it's okay to read other authors. I certainly have. But when it comes to Christianity, I'll read the book on Christianity. So I think there's a difference between reading a book on Mormonism and comparing and contrasting Mormonism and biblical Christianity and theological books where men construct entire volumes on the nature of the Holy Spirit and things like that. I think the Word of God does that for us. Oh, and I agree with you 100%. But today I'm just listening to you, and I've, I've been listening to your show for years now, and, and, and you give your own opinion on what the Bible says too. And I'm just curious if you, why you don't see that hypocrisy. Yeah, I, uh, you know, and I always say, don't trust me. I say, check it out. I never tell people don't go to church and hear a pastor teach the word. It's through the preaching of the word. But we're not talking about teaching the word. We're talking about uh, theology. And most specifically, Jeff, we're talking about creedal theology that has been handed down that we've accepted as, uh, with words like Trinity. And we will exclude and embrace people off those terms. You'll never find me doing that. Someone could be here at our church and believe in the Trinity. They can believe in the non-Trinity. They can say they're not really sure about God at all and they're welcome. So I, I think there's a difference I, between what you're saying or implying and what the reality is. And, I, you know, and I, I'm not questioning that you have said that. I've heard you say that, Sean. Yeah. I'm just curious then why don't you just, from your own show, just read from the Bible? Well, one, this is television, and it's not a theological book. It's, there, is, there are, if you've watched forever, Jeff, you have to admit that there are elements of entertainment. Yeah. Which, yeah, and, and it, does, it is a hook to get people to listen. So I would guess, listening to you, your problem really isn't with me doing the show. Your problem is with me saying, I don't read theologians. Um, yeah, that and other things, correct, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't read theologians because I have a Bible. That's why, you know? Right. And, and we're reaching LDS people in a market through television and through other forms of media. And, and I think it's just different than establishing what I believe about God outside of the biblical uh, uh, doctrine. So, I mean, it might not suit you. You might find it hypocritical. That's okay. I am a hypocritic, uh, uh, hypocrite, Jeff. And so am I, and so am I. I'm yeah. just hoping that you can admit it. Um, and yeah. you know, the reality is, Sean, you, for the last year you've been attacking, it hasn't been Mormonism you've been trying to reach. You've been trying to reach the evangelical church. What for? I'm sorry, what? To what end? Why, why am I doing that? I, honestly, I have no idea why you're attacking the evangelical church. You watch the show and you don't have any idea? Yeah, I, I do watch the show and I, I still have, have no have idea no why I you are attacking your brothers and sisters. No idea at all why I would attack a church and, the, and, and churches that 
that preach faith healing and handle snakes. But we're and, not talking about that. I'm talking about the local pastors that you've been attacking recently. I have not attacked a local pastor. Uh, you attacked one today. Okay. Oh, oh, so I see. Now, how do you know about that? Because uh, I personally have talked to him. Oh, well, that's funny. No, I, no one here knows about that. That was between he and I. How else do you know about that, Jeff? I, because he talks, he, he, he told hey, me about Jeff, it. Was it and, and Sean, the reality Jeff, is, is Jeff, you've been hey, Jeff, other people. Jeff, was it and, on and this Facebook? Been coming to you privately. Jeff, Jeff, did he post it? Continue to Jeff, them. did he post it on Disgracebook? He posted it on other things too. Oh, well, that's wonderful. We had yeah. a private conversation yeah. where we disagreed. And now you're calling me on the show to bring this private conversation up to stir up trouble. No, you know what? Oh, no, you're not. not I, you're not I, doing that, Jeff. <laughs> you're not, Jeff. You're not doing that. Well, Stan, I'm just what? curious as to why you don't see your own hypocrisy. I see my own hypocrisy. You're the one who's complaining about being attacked. Okay, I had never attacked a church, uh, a pastor on this show. You're wrong. Uh, Jason Wallace. I didn't attack Jason Wallace. Jason Wallace attacked me. You know, I've seen that whole thing fall up fall into place and you're wrong on that okay well see now again i'm answering your questions you're saying i'm attacking pastors on the show in the local community that's not true i think i've just proven that so but what you're doing is you're is you're bringing stuff forward and you're saying things because you believe it and jeff that's okay but, but you're wrong i simply attack principles well, I, no jeff let's stay on it i attack principles Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. You, you attack principles, but you've attacked other things, too, Sean. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, but I don't think I have. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Um, we have said we are not going to do this on the show. There is tremendous warfare going on between personalities over words. I was not going to say a word about this tonight. My wife is down here saying, Sean, we're not going to do that. These calls are here and they come in to assassinate character, to divide ministries. I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a guy and we disagreed on a subject and I'm not gonna even tell you the guy's name or anything about it. I wasn't gonna bring it up. One of his friends decided to bring it up. That pastor also decided to go on Facebook and describe everything within an hour of the event happening. And I, in good graces, drove out to where he was to sit down and have a conversation with him. This is what you face. And I'm supposed to trust these men and call them my brothers and believe that their, their goodness is out for what's going on in ministry in the, in the valley? I attack principles, I don't use names. I've stepped back and said it's not my job to attack the local church. It, it, it goes on and on and on. If I cross that boundary tonight, by answering that call and that stuff, I'm sorry. I want to move back to talk about principles, to talk about Mormonism and Christianity. I am not going to address on Disgracebook or any public forum anything that happens, and we're going to move forward, okay? Uh, Eric in Peru. Jason, okay, let's take Jason in Bountiful, Drew in Seattle, Eric in Peru, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Jason in... Bountiful, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jason? Jason? Peru. Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, yes, yes. Hi, John. Uh, nice to talk to you. 
tomorrow I have a, a meeting with Mormon. It's not my first time, but this is my first time in Lima, Peru. But the, the last time I, I spoke to them, I, I was able to answer all their questions, and then I have all documentation with me also. But there's one question that I couldn't a uh, answer, it, and they asked me like that. Do you believe that it is important to be baptized? And who is the authority to baptize if it's you know, the Mormon church? I, I think, Eric, baptism is a wonderful outward expression of an inward faith. In and of itself, I don't think it has any meaning at all. But if it is preceded by a heart that knows Jesus is Lord and has been born again, then it's a wonderful expression of that faith as taught and done in the early church, and I highly recommend it. And who would be the authority if it's not the Mormon church? Any believer, any believer can baptize you, male or female. Wow, yes, yes. And uh, do you have any quote in the Bible that I can show them that? Uh, in terms of baptizing, um, we, we have Paul say, I'm glad I didn't baptize, but only taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul clearly defined, divided between the gospel, which is, is everything, and water baptism. And he says, I'm glad I didn't do it. Jesus, uh, his apostles said, this guy is doing these things in your name, but he doesn't follow us. Jesus says, leave him alone. He that is not against us is for us. So we don't have this authority anymore. Uh, now, there is church authority within Scripture, but I would use those to help them understand, but more importantly, help them understand priesthood authority is gone by studying Hebrews chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. Okay. Thank you so okay, much, John, Eric. Thank you so much. And God bless you, my brother. Up. Thank you, Sean. Bye. Bye-bye. I like his accent. We're going to Drew in Seattle. Drew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? I'm a little bit ticked right now, but go ahead. Good to know. So, excuse me if I don't want to play along with the creation debate that you've been having tonight. I find it a little ridiculous to take teachings from someone with not so much authority. But before you get excited and look at the camera like I'm an idiot and cut me off and yell because that's how you feel like you're right, I have a few questions for you that I'd like you to answer fairly. Okay. And then after you answer them, give me a chance to come back with my opinion. Okay. Tell you how I feel about them. All right, Drew. Wait one second. Okay. I want right. to. I want to read to our audience that you sent me an email. In yes, fact, please it, do. It's you a, can read them the entire thing. Thank you, Drew. Um, boy, I'm doing good at this calm bit. Drew is LDS. First off, I must congratulate you. Few people in this world are capable of providing so little evidence, yet convincing so many of so much falsehood. I commend you. You are truly crafty. I recently stumbled upon your show and became quite intrigued. I have watched and listened to multiple callers, and I must agree, most are the epitome of a naive Mormon. None seem to have as much grasp on the church doctrine, let alone church history. This makes your wins all the less impressive. As an active Mormon, I am disappointed and somewhat embarrassed 
at the callers, that the callers have not defended the faith adequately. And for that reason, I ask you to allow someone with knowledge of church history and biblical history to defend that which is true. If you accept my invitation, now obviously Drew did not wait for me to accept, I will call in your show at your earliest convenience with the exception of tomorrow night. I got this yesterday. If not, I understand as it would be clearly detrimental to your ratings and audience to allow someone with a brain to have a debate with you. I look forward to hearing back from you. Sincerely, Drew. Drew, Drew did hear back from me. I said, Drew, we had a man come on. His name was Douglas Bundy. And he, he represented the faith very well. And there was no debate. It was simply an honest Latter-day Saint presenting the truths of Mormonism. And we talked back and forth. And we did it over two, and two shows, I think, maybe three, two. And uh, that sufficed. But Drew, did you read that email, Drew? I certainly did. You, you certainly did. But Drew is so, Drew is so enlightened and so intelligent that he believes he has the superiority over Doug Bundy, another faithful Latter-day Saint well-read, that he needs to call and take on Sean McCraney because he can decimate us with his knowledge. Okay, carry on, Drew. First of all, I'd like to ask, where did I say those exact words? Because you seem to be the master at making things up. So, oh, I just like read you your email. Me, you love evidence. I just you read your evidence. email. Show me the evidence. I sent you... the evidence of where I said that. Okay. Already, you're an idiot. Okay. They don't get that it's our show, and I can do that. I, it's, it's amazing. All right, last one. We're over already, so we might as well take Michael in South Lake Tahoe. Michael, you're the last caller of the night. Hey, Sean, how you doing? I'm doing splendidly. I hope the bars are All open right. at this time. <laughs> There'll be hey, trouble uh, for that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michael. Oh, okay. Uh, so my question for you is I, I've been having a deep in depth conversation with my best friend um, who's Mormon, and um, we've been having an issue over uh, what exactly Mormon scripture is. And from one of the um, like little handbooks that I've gotten from one of the Mormon churches, it talks about scripture can also be something that's fed in conference or from inside magazines. And so I've quoted some uh, Brigham Young quotes from like Journal of Discourses, and he tells me that could just be shorthand. That's not necessarily scripture. Like, what's your opinion on on that on like Journal of Discourses and stuff like that? Well, Journal of Discourses, the LDS Church is distancing itself from everything Journal of Discourse, but. In this specific argument, you have a much better uh, reference, and that's Ezra Taft Benson's speech on prophets. If you look that up online, Ezra Taft Benson's, how many was it, 12 or 10? Does anyone know? 10 points or 14 points of following the living prophet. If you look that up online, mm -hmm. you're going to hear him, a modern-day prophet, back when I was alive, a kid, uh, giving you what is scripture and what is not, and that will slay your friend where he stands. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll look. And what about the um, idea of that? A lot of that stuff is like shorthand, and it's not necessarily from the like Brigham Young saying it. That it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's it's all spin and all answers the LDS are giving because of the embarrassing uh, proof texts that are in the Journal of Discourses, and because of where they came from, they're now saying they're not reliable. They could have been given by somebody else. 
But let me tell you something, it, just back 20 years ago, the LDS Church cut their teeth on that stuff. Their manuals re re yeah. referenced all that stuff. It's only now because of the internet and the ugly light that the Journal of Discourses and the information contained therein sheds on Mormonism that they're now discounting it and coming up with all these theories. That could have been the note of a secretary that's included in here, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Right, Hope that, that helps, helpful. Michael. But check out, check out Ezra Taft Benson's thing because he says in there, a prophet does not need to say, thus saith the Lord for his words to be true. It gives you a whole bunch of stuff. You can also find a lot of things if you go to utlm.org about what is uh, scripture and what is not and how almost everything to them is scripture, but almost everything is not. And so, uh, you, but you'll at least be armed to argue with your friend. Okay. All right. Well, if you ever want a place to stay when you come out to South Lake and go snowboarding or something, feel free. <laughs> if I snowboarded, it would be the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. It would be like a. It hey, would we be. Go... What? My daughter's. Oh, what? I was saying, yeah. Oh. Bad sound. God bless you, Michael. Thanks so much. Listen sick to death of the arguing. And I, I, just, I just gotta wrap it up with this and we'll, go, we'll see you next week. It doesn't flow both ways. I accept Calvinists, I accept Trinitarians, I accept non-Trinitarians, I accept Mormons who say I've been born again and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I accept Catholics who say it, I accept people who have a desire for the king and, the, and I just accept people in that way. And in the body of Christ today, what has happened is theology, intelligence, um, education, trumps faith and love. And now we all judge each other by the doctrine, by what, what every single jot and tittle is. Note, who, did, who educated Jesus? Who educated his 12 apostles? The, the, I, I get education's important if you're a doctor if you're in a profession. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, head knowledge means nothing compared to the heart that you have for God. And we have become a society where head knowledge is trying, it's just like what happened when Jesus was alive with the Sadducees and Pharisees, and we kill each other over it. And uh, so I'm guilty of it too. I wanna step away from the infighting, and we're gonna give it another go next week here on Heart of the Matter.